These are the people who traded in their chips and changed their minds, all in the name of fresh air. And we're letting these folks interview each other. Each week, student becomes teacher and interviewee becomes interviewer. I'm Nick Mott, host of the show, and this is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, your source for outdoor gear, classes, and experiences. When I'm outside, I've always thought my choice of diet's probably not the healthiest. I rarely hit the trail without at least a handful of gummy worms, like the sour neon kind, so I was curious to hear from Alan Lim. He's a nutrition expert, cyclist, and founder of Scratch Labs, a company that makes snacks and hydrating drinks for long days outdoors. Last episode, mountaineer Giselle Cecine talked about her experience in the high mountains. Everest is also a tough place mentally. I think if they ever make a reality show there, like they'll totally like, you know, take the throne from the Kardashians or something. <laughs> now Giselle's at Alan's apartment. There's a Star Wars statue that welcomes you inside and bikes and books are everywhere. What else you want to know? My parts are all from China. I was made in the Philippines. So I was programmed in Los Angeles. I identify as a very tall Asian man, not a white short guy. Something like that. I don't know. Giselle and Alan sat to talk about food, bikes, and failure. Could you tell us about your first bike and learning to ride? The first bike that I learned to ride on wasn't even my first bike. It was my friend Chung Chung's bike. That was actually his name. His name was Chung, but his last name was Chung. And I think his parents were like, screw it. Like, we got to give this kid an American name. Like, screw that. Let's just call him Chung. Chung. Uh, Chung Chung had a sister. And his sister had this little, like, snow white, like, princess bicycle. And I would often hang out at Chung Chung's house after school. This is probably like, I don't know, you know, first grade or so. And his driveway was slightly sloping. And one day I was bored, so I picked up the bike and I tried kind of riding it. And I found that if I let gravity push me down the hill, I could kind of keep my feet to my side and, and stay upright. And eventually I just kept on repeating that until I was able to lift my feet and coast down the hill. That was a truly magical moment, learning how to ride a bicycle on Chung Chung's sister's snow white bike. What made you like wanted to try at such a young age to like come up with a sport drink. I mean, at the time, like sport nutrition wasn't like a big thing, like it's now. I was always a tinkerer as a kid. We're an immigrant family. We didn't have a lot of money or resources. For me, my parents getting me a bicycle to race on was a huge deal. I used to kind of just linger around the bike shop all the time, like dreaming about buying one of these bicycles. And when I finally got like a proper racing bicycle, it was a huge, huge deal. But I remember like, you know, we'd be at a bike store or, or at the supermarket or whatever, and I'd want to buy energy bars. I'd want to buy, you know, the, the shiny little power bar. And my parents would be like, are you crazy? You know how expensive that is? Like, there's just no way. And I used to feel really embarrassed because I had to make my own foods and I had to make my own, my own drinks and I had to experiment and I couldn't afford all of the sports nutrition out there. So at a really young age, I started to tinker with my own formulas. I didn't know that that was going to become something. I have these notes in my old training diaries about it. But eventually that that interest in both the science as well as the sport itself led me to go to go to college. I got a degree in exercise science. Then I went on to grad school here at the University of Colorado Boulder. I got a PhD in uh, exercise physiology. 
studying cycling performance, studying sports performance. That brought me onto the pro cycling tour as a coach and sports scientist. And when I was on the pro cycling tour, athletes were constantly complaining about their sports drinks that, you know, these neon colored drinks were making them feel sick, that their prepackaged energy bars were too, you know, dry and giving them gut rot. So I started tinkering again, not even really realizing that I had done so as a kid. I'd kind of forgotten that that's what I used to do, but it was instinctive. And I started, you know, making my own sports drinks. I started making little sushi rice cakes for the riders. I started traveling from, you know, hotel to hotel with this, you know, rice cooker, calling my mom up for old recipes that I could, you know, use to, to, to make for the, for the riders. And things just evolved from there. We found that real food, making everything from scratch just worked better right and in a sport that is so technocentric meaning you know it's all about technology about advancement about what's the next greatest thing about reductionism and what did this molecule do and what does that molecule do we found that just going back to things that tasted good that smelled good that they wanted to eat it helped them perform better I'm trying to picture myself as a 13-year-old trying to experiment with something, and I, I have no idea how would I ever start. Like, how do you do it? I I come from a you know family that has a huge cooking culture. Chinese culture as a whole is all about the kitchen. Everything happens in the kitchen. My parents, when they first came to this country, my dad bagged groceries at a local Chinese you know supermarket, and then eventually they opened up a little Chinese restaurant, right? I mean, they did everything they could to survive. And part of that survival was built around food and, and, and having good food. So I was always around it, even though I, I don't think that I had really any kind of skills, but I would tinker. So, you know, I would literally open up a can of peaches and put that in a Ziploc bag with honey. And in the middle of a race or a ride, I would tear out a corner and squeeze that into my mouth as if it was some sort of prepackaged gel. There's a Chinese dish salt called zong, and it's basically uh, really sticky rice that you know has soy sauce and really savory with a little piece of pork belly in the middle, and it's wrapped up in banana leaves. It's one of the best energy bars you can ever take anywhere. I take these little these little rice cakes or this zong and little Chinese dishes or leftover food and repurpose it for the food that I used when I was a when I was a kid. And effectively when I got on the pro cycling tour, that's what I was doing. I was taking a rice cooker, cooking fresh rice, mixing in a bunch of flavors, you know, brags, eggs, bacon, whatever it was, packing them in a in a little brownie squares, wrapping them up in paper foil, and that's what the guys would eat. And it worked better than energy bar. So you pretty much took all of your, you know, your family traditions the chinese traditions of like like you just said being around the table and being around the kitchen to give these athletes a better performance that's right that's right and it might seem kind of simple and it might seem you know trivial but it wasn't it, it was the one thing that was really missing and i think that we forget sometimes when we look at athletes that they're just human beings who happen to have an extraordinary talent but do you think that the, where you are today is related to random luck or is related to being driven and to you know work for it i think it's 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 both it was my parents and their dreams their belief in the american dream that brought them from china to the philippines and from the philippines to los angeles i was talking to my mom about this the other day and i asked her you know this very specific question i said what day did we arrive in la 
And without even hesitating, she said, May 19th, 1973. Like, that's how important of a day that was, that this was the start of not just hard work, but the belief in a dream. And that was certainly passed on to me. So I'm really lucky that I had the opportunity, first and foremost. But second, I think I was really lucky that I didn't have a lot when I was a kid. I was really lucky that I had to struggle. I I was really lucky that I grew up in a diverse community that certainly had a lot of its own racial tension and difficulty. And I was a foreigner and all of these things manifested in a way where it became okay for me to struggle. It became okay to delay gratification. It became okay to have this grandiose dream, but literally work on it every single day, not knowing what was going to happen. So yeah, I count myself really, really lucky for having a set of circumstances that makes me want to work hard, that makes me feeling like my back is against the wall all the time. I don't think that I'm ever really comfortable. And I think that not feeling comfortable is a pretty necessary trait to succeeding. How how did your parents feel when you like started to having this like really, you know, like like for, for sports and for cycling? Yeah, I think that it really scared them. I think that even especially my mom thought that it was a path that was going to lead me nowhere. She was really, really fearful that I was literally and figuratively spinning my wheels. I kind of expressed to her that I had these big dreams about becoming a pro cyclist and she was so discouraging of that but i don't think it was in a in a in a negative way my mom was was really really interesting in terms of how she saw me and how she raised me when i was in elementary school you know i got like c's and d's and it was just kind of barely passing and just moving along and she got called into this pta meeting or this teachers meeting and i got really nervous i was kind of you know like oh crap like it's it's coming down the dream is over And she comes back from this meeting and I ask her how it went and what happened and what the teacher say. And she said, well, the teacher says that you're a really good kid, but that you're just not living up to your potential, that you're slacking, that you're lazy, that you don't care. And I was like, oh, shit. And I asked her, well, what did you tell the teacher? And my mom says, well, I told the teacher that that was just fine, that you're just a kid and that, you know, didn't really matter as long as you were behaving and as long as you learned and as long as you made it through. So she gave me a free pass. And she said to me, though, she said, but there will come a a day when you will have to get good grades and you will have to turn it on. And when I tell you that it's time, you got to start performing. First day of high school, I remember walking out the door and my mom screaming at me, it's time. And from that point on, I got straight A's, you know, I like cranked it out. And I realized that I had that capacity because I wasn't burnt. Like I was totally fresh. I was just like, okay, it's time. It's funny. I remember coming back from, from the Tour de France one year, a guy I was coaching won the tour and came to visit my mom. And the only thing she asked me was like, how'd your friend you in that bike race? And I was like, he won. And she, she said to me, oh, that's nice. And that was kind of it. And then she asked me, like, you need to borrow any money? Like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Like, she was like, all right, that's cool. I'm curious, how do you go from, like, being the coach with a rice cooker and making these rice crackers and experimenting with, like, sports drinks to, like, thinking, oh, I'm going to start, start up? Yeah, you don't. 
you don't like you can't plan this shit like it, it just happens and a lot of it happens because things happen in your life that you don't expect things happen in your life that are bad mistakes are made you fail and what's interesting you see someone's resume and you look at this list of successes what I always want to know is what was the major foobar that helped them get there and for me that major foobar was the doping wars that we're having in professional cycling. I came into the sport at a time where that stuff was in full bloom and it was really traumatic for me and I did my best to try to help quell that and to develop systems to, to prevent athletes from cheating. But that success also got me a lot of attention and by 2009 I had an offer to coach Lance Armstrong. In part, you know, I think that he really wanted to, to, to end his career in the right way. In part, I think that, you know, I was also a good beard for him. It's it's hard to really know. But I saw it as an opportunity to keep on evolving as a person, to help the sport, to help him. But the year that I started working for Lance, uh, the federal investigation on Lance started. And that basically destroyed everything. By the 2010 Tour de France, I remember coming home back here to Boulder to a bunch of federal investigators waiting for me with subpoenas and search warrants. Literally, like, where are the bags of blood? And although I had only been with Lance for uh, six months, the association basically ended my career. You always think that it's a good idea at the time, and it turns out it's not a good idea. But mostly I was just scared. Mostly I was just at a loss. And I think that when you realize that everything that you've worked for might be taken away from you, you're kind of inconsolable. It, it literally is like having a nightmare and not being able to wake up from it. I didn't have anything to do. I was effectively benched. I had reached the highest level of the sport of cycling and I got screwed. Well, shit happened. So I found myself, you know, literally looking online for a job, going through Craigslist, realizing that I wasn't qualified for crap. Like a dude with a rice cooker running, you know, running around the world to bike races, like you're just really not qualified to do anything meaningful, right? At the same time, you know, these athletes were asking me for the sports drink I used to make for them. And initially I was like, you know, you can all go F yourself. Like there's no way I'm making you sports drink. Like the sport has just screwed me. But then I'd feel guilty. I felt bad. So I started like making sports drinks in my kitchen, shipping it off to my friends. And then more of them started asking for it. We figured out that if we poured all the raw ingredients in these food safe paint buckets from a local hardware store, McGuckin Hardware, you get a lifetime of free shaking if you use a McGuckin Hardware bucket. And so we would go to the hardware store and we'd use their paint shaker to mix this stuff put it in Ziploc bags and just charge our friends like 20 bucks a bag. And it just kind of started. I mean, I had really nothing better to do. I had all this time on my hand. So we were just making sports drink in a paint shaker. What we realized was that food and drink is better from scratch and that we were starting our own lives over again from scratch. And so in 2012, we launched Scratch Labs. And, and Scratch Labs is really built on that belief that no matter where you find yourself in life, it's never too late to start from scratch. And so it wasn't like there was some great plan to be entrepreneurial and start a business. Our backs were against the wall. We had no other choice. I couldn't find a job. What, what, do, you, what do you think you actually learned from your time working with Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong? 
I learned a lot. I learned that first and foremost, you got to trust yourself and you got to stick to your own guns, that there's a huge element of peer pressure that happens when um, you're part of a group and you see things that you recognize aren't right. It's really, really easy to be manipulated to believe that it is right. And it's really, really easy to start to rationalize your own behavior. It's this idea that we might think that something is immoral or unethical or completely wrong or grates against who we are. But if we have a reason to justify going against that, we do. If I were to tell myself going back, it's simply that what you have is enough. You don't need any more. But it's that greed and that want and it's that desire it's all the things that, that, that maybe make us successful that are our greatest enemies. You were, yeah, I wouldn't go lucky enough to be called by a former president to see his writing form, right? You went to see President Bush. Where did you see? Oh, how, who called you? How was that? Yeah, that's a little weird, right? G-Dub was, was a huge cycling fan. And uh, as part of my PhD project, I was part of a team that helped to uh, work on this rear hub power meter called the Power Tap. He was really interested in this technology, so I got in contact through his, what's called his body man, he's like his personal assistant, and he started asking me all these questions about training and what they were doing, and, and eventually they were just like, why don't you just come out? It's funny where, where a simple sport, a simple childhood love like riding your bicycle will, will bring you. The coolest thing, uh, though, that, that happened in that experience, you know, my brother went into the military right out of college. He became an attack helicopter pilot. My brother's a badass. And he started flying a security around DC. And I remember being in the presidential caravan, coming back from a bike ride with the president. We're driving back to the White House and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is crazy. Like the traffic jam we are causing from this caravan is unreal. We pull up to the backside of the White House and there are all these helicopters up in the air. And I'm just like, wow, that's a trip. I go back into the White House and about 30, 40 minutes later, I get this call from my brother and he's freaking out. He's like, where are you? He's like, are you in Washington, D.C.? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, are you with the president? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, did you just see all those helicopters? Did you just come out of the, the, you know, the caravan? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, dude, I was flying one of those helicopters. You know, and he'd see, he had seen me and his crew didn't believe that that I was his brother. And so... You know, I went to meet him and his flight crew, uh, you know, in a local, local bar, and they were, like, totally freaking out. It was just fun, right? It, it was this kind of neat moment for two immigrant brothers, you know, to kind of, kind of effectively reach the same, same moment in time. Did your mother find out about this? Yeah, my mom found out about it, and, and that was the moment, I think, where she finally start, stopped giving my brother and I shit about our careers, right? <laughs> she finally chilled out out <laughs> you know uh which is i think a great moment for my mom because i don't think my mom wants to be stressed out about what her kids are doing and i, I think that she always wanted to find a sense of her own success and her own comfort and i think it was at that moment that she kind of maybe thought to herself like okay my kids are good kids and they're gonna be okay and maybe i can start enjoying my own life it's quite a life i mean like you've been with you know you kind of went with Armstrong through this like whole process of like he was like you know the king of the sports and then suddenly he's just at the bottom of the sports and in society and then you have going into rights with the president while your brother is flying over the White House it's like what are the chances 
Yeah, it's a trip. It's a total trip. It does kind of put a smile on my face and it does kind of stoke the the flame of belief that anything is possible. At the same time, that's always that's always balanced by the amount of work that it really takes to make happen, you know? Like I grew up watching and learning English, watching these PBS shows like Sesame Street and The Electric Company. And my favorite was The Reading Rainbow. And the theme song of The Reading Rainbow is 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 fantastic. I mean, I can sing it to you right now. It's like butterfly in the sky, I can fly twice as high, take a look, it's in a book, The Reading Rainbow. That made me believe as a kid that I was the butterfly, that I could fly twice as high. But you know, as I started to kind of become an adult, I would often find myself literally kind of cursing the reading rainbow for making me believe like, this is bullshit. I'm not a butterfly. I can't fly twice as high. What the hell is going on? And, and I think it was because I wasn't ready to believe that like literally every flap of the wing mattered, that like you had to, to, to toil it's it's a weird thing to balance, right? It's a weird thing to balance your own sense of happiness, your own sense of joy, your own sense of fun, because I think that it's that joy, it's that fun that really makes you successful. It gives you an advantage, which allows you to work harder. I don't mean to say that it's all toil, but I do mean to say that you got to be prepared that things are not going to happen overnight and that you better be in love with the process and you better be in love with chopping those vegetables if you want to have a great meal. What role, you know, being outside on your bike serve for you? You know, for me, being outside on my bicycle, it allows me to express the hedonistic side of myself. We are rational beings. I was always trained as a science to use evidence to solve problems. But I think that there's a part of us that is all gut. We get cold, put on a jacket. We get hungry. We need to eat food. We get thirsty. We need a drink. And as comp complex as this world is, I love the idea that the hedonist within us, that pursuit of pleasure, can be a real shining light. And when you get on a bicycle and you're out in nature, you start relying on that hedonistic part of yourself. You start to rely on that instinct. You start to rely on intuition. You start to see things a little more differently. Your brain literally gets more blood flow and you start to think a little sharper. I love, love being an animal. I appreciate getting back to what is more kind of core to ourselves. I love coming back from a ride, being out in nature and just feeling hungry. It's a beautiful thing, but if you don't get out there in the woods, you forget. Check out REI.com slash blog for photos and other stories of opting outside. And next time, hear Alan talk with Mo Beck, an adaptive athlete that climbs harder than I do, one-handed. This is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, the co-op that helps you get outside through gear, classes, and experiences. REI is dedicated to protecting the places we play, and they believe that a life outdoors is a life well-lived. I believe it too, so get outside and find your next adventure. <laughs>